gentlemen, welcome to episode 221 of the 1099. As always, I am your host, Joseph Noop, and this week's guest is a writer whose work has been seen at Wired, The Atlantic, and The AV Club, and now he is releasing NBA Jam The Book, a definitive history of the classic basketball arcade game, its creators, and the rise and fall of arcades. Rayan Ali, how are you, man? I'm doing all right, Joseph. How are you? I am great. Uh, and as we were discussing before, I, I'm glad I got the pronunciation right. You uh, you actually grew up in Karachi, Pakistan, uh, as your bio t- t- tells me. And I found that really fascinating because uh, we, we're here today to talk about this new book. And I, I managed to read through about 75% of it, uh, as all things, life and uh, video game review events get in the way. But of course. I, I, I have been on a like nonfiction bent lately and combining that plus video games is just like the best thing in the world. And I love uh, it's Boss Fight Books is the publisher behind this, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, Boss Fight Books out of Los Angeles. Yeah, boss fight books for I guess anyone who maybe uh, frequents video game culture or industry events, you might recognize them. They're the kind of uh, pocket-sized books that have very minimalist covers. They've done one on like Shadow of the Colossus uh, and now NBA Jam, and uh, really great opportunity for these smaller but more meaningful stories to get told. And uh, so I definitely want to start off just learning a little bit more about who you are as a writer and as a person who really loved NBA Jam growing up. It's clear uh, you grew up in Karachi, Pakistan. Mm-hmm. What was it like? What was it like growing up there? And w- when did NBA come into the picture? Yeah, yeah. So let me give you just a little bit more backstory on me. Uh, so my uh, my dad is Pakistani. My mom is a white American woman. So they met in college back probably this is the early 80s or so. Anyways, they weren't married for long. Uh, split up when I was real little, but I was born in Dallas, Texas. And then I ended up moving with my dad over to Pakistan when I was about, let's say, five or so. So I was there from five to 15. And just to give you some context, that would probably be about 91 to 2001. So right that whole the main time frame in which all the NBA Jam stuff happened, you know, in the whole '90s arcade scene. What's funny is I'm writing a whole book about the '90s arcade scene, and so much of what I know about it is through just occasionally visiting the states in that time frame, or mm-hmm. reading about stuff, learning about stuff through documentaries and through other pe- people's accounts and things like that. Um, yeah, so uh, grew up over there. Uh, my first experience with video games was in the states when I was a little kid. With a super, with a Super Nintendo, with a Nintendo, and then I ended up uh, going over to Pakistan. Uh, I was five or so, and then ended up getting a Sega Mega Drive soon after that, or rather Sega Mega Drive Two, which is the Sega Genesis for mm-hmm. the European market, for the PAL market. Anyway, uh, I remember seeing an ad on the back of a comic book once. This was probably been like let's say ninety four, ninety five or so, and um, it was for my birthday. So w- one of the things that my uncle would do over there is he would uh, pick up a whole bunch of like magazines or comic books for me, like all kinds of stuff, whatever he could. Uh, there was a certain section of town where he could go and you could get these for basically cut rate prices. Anyways, I think this was a Superboy comic, and on the back of it there was this really great ad uh, for NBA Jam Tournament Edition. And the colors really popped off the page. I mean, that was a claim at its best. I mean, it was just really vibrant. It was just really attractive to my eye. I was like, man, what is this stuff? And didn't really know basketball. I mean, I knew about Michael Jordan and a couple of big players like Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, or anything like that. But it was really removed from that. Uh, growing up in Pakistan, the big sport over there was cricket. Um, and then you can get things over there like soccer or field hockey. Um, but cricket by far is, you know, cricket is to Pakistan what, you know, it would be football, basketball, baseball combined. I mean, it's the national sport. It's something that everybody really loves over there. That's that European influence. Mm-hmm. So the NBA and this whole world of basketball was something that I only knew a little bit about. Just, you know, the little bits you pick up through osmosis as you're a little kid. So it's probably like, let's say, Eight, nine, ten, or so about this time. I've probably been, yeah, nine, ten, or eleven. Come to think of it, this time when I was really paying attention uh, to video games, and then yeah, reading these comic books and these magazines, and I saw that ad for NBA Jam Tournament Edition, and those colors really popped out, and the logos for the Seattle SuperSonics and the Phoenix Suns. I mean, it was just really jumped off the page at me. So because of that, I decided that I wanted to try this game, or that at least I was going to give it a second thought. So at that point, when I was playing games, I went out got NBA Jam Tournament Edition, 
and I just loved this thing. I thought it was a fantastic game, and that was one of the big things that got me into basketball. So it was funny. It's this game that is completely unrealistic, that is completely divorced from reality. I mean, you've got people doing these insane dunks. You've got people being on fire, two-on-two action versus five-on-five. This is what drew me to basketball. But combined with Beckett basketball magazines, so trading card magazines, um, you know, occasionally CNN would show a clip or so here or there of something that went on in the league. Uh, combined with that, combined with the trading cards themselves, a few other things, I kind of pieced together a uh, love for NBA basketball. And I really, really loved it, as in I was a diehard fan in the 90s, even though I couldn't see the games, which is really strange. I mean, this is before the internet. Yeah. Uh, my family got internet in, like, let's say, 97 or so. And, uh, you know, even then, the internet is so new, you can't stream anything. So I knew about players, I knew about what they were like, but I'd not really seen a lot of them. Um, anyways, that's where my love for basketball began was with NBA Jam, a tournament edition. And then I also had a love simultaneously for Mortal Kombat, which was by Midway. And I really love Mortal Kombat. In fact, that was the very first writing gig I ever had was writing for Mortal Kombat website. And this oh, was probably fun. just around the same time. Yeah, yeah. So it's long lost to time. It's called Mortal Kombat Netherrealm, MK Nee is what we called it. And now it goes by, they go by NetherRealm Studios. So it's kind of cool to see the word NetherRealm stick around so much. It's something from Mortal Kombat that's been in the lore for so long, but you know, back when we were in Mortal Kombat NetherRealm, NetherRealm Studios, of course, wouldn't be a thing for many years. Um, anyways, I love that world of Midway, and I really just deeply love Mortal Kombat. So I recognized a lot of the names just between the overlap between the games, like you know, Sal Davida, who was an artist on NBA Jam and an artist on NFL Blitz, and he was on WWF WrestleMania. He was Sector and smoke and cyrax and mm -hmm. nightwolf in mortal kombat 3 there's a lot of overlap like that so i knew about the whole nba jam team just a little bit here and there their names you know at a time when not everybody would know those game developers names especially as a kid pre-internet before you're all connected and also as somebody who wasn't really that much into game development itself like i always appreciated you know what this world was but i didn't really know much about it um anyways yeah so combined you know, with that, the, the love for the NBA that I had and the, my love for Mortal Kombat and knowing that there was this overlap between worlds, like my love for NBA Jam really grew. And I've been freelance writing for several years. I started writing when I was just about to graduate college. So this is about late 2007. And I've done lots and lots of freelancing over the years, mostly music stuff, pop culture stuff. Funny enough, very little video game stuff. Like I've maybe written five video game articles before sometimes you need book. variety man sometimes you, yeah it, it, you gotta step away i would write someone paid me four thousand dollars to write about like vr business applications once and i'm like you know what this will this will be stupid fun <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah and that's a yeah that's a, you should absolutely go for something like that when an opportunity like that comes up yeah um and the thing was that you know with music writing and pop culture that was something that you know, so what I would do is I would write for all weeklies across the country. So I'd pitch to them no matter where they were. So I've written for um, just on the all weekly side, SF Weekly, the Chicago Reader, the Village Voice, Miami New Times, you know, uh, Houston Press all across the country. I wrote for the New Haven Advocate in Connecticut and Hartford Advocate in Connecticut all the time, even though I've never been to Connecticut myself. So I would just do little music previews and whatnot. Um, anyways, I pitched a couple of music books. Uh, both of those got rejected. Uh, this was after writing for about, like, let's say five, six, seven years at this point. But then I really knew I wanted to do something substantial. I'm like, a book is really my future. It's something that I really want to sink my teeth into. There wasn't really much opportunity for me, honestly, on the freelance side of things. You know, you know, it's a very tough world. And it's one of those things where you have to come up with your own idea in order to really make it. And because I was pitching to places all over the place, you know, people weren't really noticing me or ever paying attention to my name. I'd just be here one week and then someplace else the next. And there was never a, a name or a face really much associated with anything that I wrote. And I really wanted to do something substantial. Uh, so I pitched Boss Fight Books, this book on NBA Jam in 2015. They had a, an open call for pitches and I knew I wanted to do something for it. But I was like, man, what can I do? What can I do? I got to do a video game that people really love. So something that will have an audience, something that I care about, something that has some interesting stories behind it. So I kind of racked my brain and I was like, you know what? They haven't done a sports game book yet. And I think NBA Jam would be awesome for that though. 
that was the first thing that stuck yeah. out to me is like here's all these essays about like shadow of the colossus and maybe like a fighting game uh but like a lot a lot or final fantasy it was like mm -hmm. yeah where's the where's the like arcadey sports uh game where i'm being represented and this is that that was one thing that certainly drew my eye Absolutely, yeah. And they hadn't even done any other arcade games besides this, uh, well, excluding Galaga by Michael Kimball, which was, I think, the first boss fight book I read, and I really liked it. Um, so it's me me and Michael Kimball. We're just the, the sole arcade guys. But I loved arcade games very deeply. Uh, a few arcade games would make it out to Pakistan, and I would document them obsessively. Like anything I would be able to I don't think I would find, I'd write its name down in the back of a notebook. And I haven't been able to find that notebook. I mean, I'm, I collect a lot of my own, or I've still held on to a lot of my stuff, but I can't find that one notebook with the names of all the arcade games I played. But I loved <laughs> arcade games deeply. Um, so yeah, so I was like, what can I pitch? So I came up with NBA Jam, and then I pitched it in, in I think it was May or June 2015. And I was lucky enough for them to say yes, but I was really going for it. I wrote a 37-page pitch. Good Lord. And yeah, for context, it was like against probably, from what I could guess, other pitches were about eight or ten pages. Mm -hmm. And but I really wanted this. Like I had the beginning, the middle, and end. In fact, I came up with a cover concept, the cover concept of the ball on fire. It's a gimme, but it's something that I added at the la as the last page <laughs> of my pitch. I was just just imagine a ball set on fire on a cover, and so I came up with this idea, and they were really into it, which was great. And then I started in June 2015 or so. And I was like, man, this is going to take me a year, two years tops. I mean, this is going to be fun. This will be this will be too hard. And then lo and behold, you know, time flies, life happens. As always, there's more stuff to do than you have time for in a day. And four years later, here we are. I'm finally done, though. Um, but along the way, I've learned more about NBA Jam probably than anybody else in the world. And this isn't really just to like flex. It's more like I've just talked to so many people and I spend so much time obsessing over this one thing that has fans, but not diehard fans who know everything about every aspect of it inside and out um, that I'm probably the preeminent source on NBA jam in the world Dude, at this moment. Flat, like flex. So, I, uh, I, there we go. I yeah. spent three months uh, putting together a Tony Hawk pro skater retrospective and actually talking mm -hmm. to Tony and uh, a bunch of the, the Neversoft founders and every writer should flex when they like get something big like that. But if you finish a book, you should absolutely flex. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. Finish yeah. a, finishing a book is something that not even like uh, many journalists, freelance or otherwise can uh, pursue. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that was honestly, you know, it's a, it was a, passion project to some degree because uh of course with all this you know you're ultimately counting on this ultimately selling and you know there being a whole readership and these people being out there and of course in 2015 i just had these glimmers of an idea i mean i had that 37 page pitch but it was still just an idea and i hadn't even talked to anybody i hadn't done a single interview for the book so far this is all just stuff that i'd come up with through research mm -hmm. and through my knowledge of midway um based on all those years prior so yeah so um yeah, all that time later, I've finally been able to finish it. Man, it was really tough to do. It's one of those things like, yeah, everybody – like the idea of writing a book is really sexy and really fun, but it can be really tough and grueling, especially when uh, it's against a day job. So you know, this book has entirely been written in off hours, on weekends and mornings, um, playing hooky from work on lunch, things like that. Uh, the interview I did with DG Jazzy Jeff that appears in the book, I did that in – uh, the parking lot of my work at about 9.30, I was just like, oh, I have to go away for, for a few minutes. So I went down at 9.30 one day, yeah. sat in my car, called up DJ Jazzy Jeff, or he called me, and then I went back up to went right back to the day job. Um, so it's been a labor of love, a lot of work. And of course, with projects like this, when they're so big, you definitely feel even at points when you know it'll be done and it'll be good. Just like, I don't know if I can do this, or I don't know, like, if I can go on, like, I need like some kind of real cushion in order to make this happen. But you know, you keep pushing, keep pushing. And finally, this is where we are today. And, you know, before we dive into the uh, themes of the book itself, I, I really did notice, um, I think, I think actually I found the NBA jam Twitter account that you run, uh, because you had shared some sort of crazy, like footage from a, like sort of live demo of, it wasn't the original doom, but it might've been like doom 64 or something. Uh, where a doom demon like fights Jax Briggs from Mortal Kombat for some godforsaken reason. And I, that like really illustrated to me that you have a fascination with game history because you're sharing a lot of these funny 
tidbits and clips that I, as someone, I'm, I'm 27 years old, uh, this past, uh, like a week ago, basically. <laughs> and so I, I wasn't even remotely cognizant of a lot of this. So you clearly have a fascination with that. And I guess you've, you've basically already explained where that fascination came from, but was there any other part yeah. of, was there any other part of this that like really push you? Like, I, w- I want to do history of games. Yeah, I love Masters of Doom uh, by David Kushner. It's one of my favorite books. And early on in the process, I was trying to figure out, okay, what kind of book is this going to be? Is this going to be, you know, am I going to be a character in this? Am I going to make it first person at all? Mm. Is it going to be just about NBA Jam? Will I expand it to Midway? You know, how much is too much? Um, In fact, I had, you know, at one point I had this idea to to start it off, not actually with, uh, I start off the book with Pong. That's the the first thing in chapter one, mm-hmm. uh, aside from the prologue. But my original idea was like, man, maybe I should do something about uh, Tennis for Two, which was that the game that was being tested at a laboratory way back when in the 40s. Um, I think it was like the late 40s, or early 50s is one of the very first video games, or the first ideas of a video game, because it was a sports game that inspired Pong. But I was like, that's going back too far. So um, I love game history. Yeah, especially stuff from the era that I grew up with and I really cared about. Honestly, I don't play nearly as many games as I used to. I'm very casual. You know, I'll pick up Mortal Kombat 11 and Injustice 2 with friends Mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, But I I don't really play games too extensively. Um, You know, but when I was young, like I loved video games so much. I had my own, like I made up my own fanzine. And in fact, I just found this yesterday. I was like, boy, I got to post this on Twitter sometime. I had two of them. I had Magazine and I had X Gamer. So, and I was like, boy, I gotta, gotta really bust these out sometime. But yeah, I would like come up with my own articles as a kid. And I really loved the idea of video games at that time. And plus video game magazines. I mean, I haven't really talked about that too much um, before, but video game magazines were a huge influence for me. I mean, uh, it was a special treat over there. So you'd get the imported magazines in Pakistan, but you'd get them probably, let's say two months after the fact. Oh, interesting. And of course news, yeah, news traveled much more slowly back then. Um in the nineties, but even then like, you know, okay, you get it after two months. And then it was a treat for me to go out and get a magazine. Like it'd be, okay, you can get like one magazine a month or two magazines a month. And, uh, thankfully my mom was over in the States and was able to send me over some magazines to supplement that. But it was always a really big deal to have a game magazine. Like it was a real treat. So a lot of love came for that, from that too. And some of that sentimentality. Um, but yeah, no, I love game history, but especially stuff that, really uncovers like the weird little nooks and crannies. I mean, the big stories out there absolutely should be told. But what's amazing to me is that there's all of these people that are alive from the 90s. Let's say the 90s because that's my area of focus and that's my favorite era to talk about. But like there's all these people out there from the 90s that haven't told their stories like, you know, how come he's doing a you know deep dive on, you know, Arrow the Acrobat or something or like, you know, somebody needs to talk about, you know, I don't know. Um, God, I'm the only examples that come to mind offhand are like like random platformers and things like that. But like, oh, there's a Beavis and Butthead game. Like somebody needs to do something about that. Yeah. Like all these people that are involved in the development of these games um, that I've never read anything about. Like I don't know who made Killer Instinct, honestly, like in terms of the people's names or what the story was behind the development of Killer Instinct. And that stuff should absolutely be shared, especially um, while most of these people are likely alive and well. So – yeah, no, I love game history. You know, and let let's dive into. I, I don't want. I certainly don't want to uh, cover the entirety of the book because the whole point here is to you know encourage people to read it, and it is a really damn good book. Uh, but the nineties. Um, <laughs> I was born in ninety two. I'll, I'll fess up mm-hmm. to that. So uh, I, yeah. I have a, a very young lens that I view it through. But I I grew up certainly being a Michael Jordan fan and uh, had lots of like Bulls memorabilia at home. Uh, Of course, Space Jam was my shit as a kid. (laughs) And uh, mine too. I had the stickers. I had all these stickers. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Space Jam was so hot at that time in Pakistan. There were actually knockoff Space Jam stickers. I am not kidding you. There were these Space Jam sticker books that were so hot amongst the school kids. Um, You could get the original stickers. And then people started selling knockoffs. And I still have some of these knockoffs. I got to share them sometime. I have some amazing memorabilia from like pirated games, pirated books back in the day. Um, But go ahead. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, I just, uh, the 90s was a special time both for games, uh, both home and arcade and, uh, and just basketball culture. That was, that was the era where the Bulls ran really prominently. Uh, they were, they were kind of taking the crown from, uh, magic and, uh, 
in the book, you do this really great job. It, it described to me where where was video games shortly before uh, NBA Jam. Uh, the the idea for NBA Jam was coalescing. Where where were we as a culture, both in sports and games? Yeah, um, let's see. Sports wise, so focusing on basketball primarily, like you said, uh, we were at the point where the Bulls were just really starting to peak uh, as the '90s hit, and the the Magic Johnson LA Lakers, that whole Showtime era Lakers squad, was just nearing its end. The Detroit Pistons were there in the mix too. Um, and Jordan was really such a big factor and making the NBA hot in the 90s. I mean, I feel like no matter what happened, there are all these amazing talents that the NBA would have been big. But Michael Jordan just took it to another level so that, you know, people knew around the world knew of Michael Jordan and people around the world cared about Space Jam. Um, but yeah, it's video game wise. I think it was a, a cool era before you had a lot of the conveniences that you do now in terms of, well, at least from the side of having, let's say, CDs. Um, and this is my, my convenience more from the game developer's perspective, I imagine, that of having more space and better technology to do stuff with, you know, um, at least in the early 90s before NBA Jam came along. It's just the start of 3D. You're just playing around with the idea of what it means to have a realistic video game. And what's cool is that NBA Jam in particular is a special kind of game that's trapped between that old era where you don't have much technology, you've got really limited resources, and the new era where you've got you know, lots of cool stuff happening, lots of cool technology on the screen. And NBA Jam is kind of a mix of both those, um, kind of the, I'd say, an analog and digital era, even though it's all digital in a way. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was a really interesting time. Of course, this was before uh, Sony came along and was a major factor. This was Sega and Nintendo really going head-to-head. And when it came to arcade games, arcade games were the top-of-the-line game. I mean, people go to arcades now, but it's a very different experience. But back in the early 90s, especially, you were going over there to see the very best in video games, the absolute mm-hmm. best version of the games. And you had to leave your house to go do it. You know, you have to go leave your house. You have to interact with strangers. You have to wait in line. You do all these things just to experience the newest games and just for a few minutes at a time, if that. So um, it was something really special. And uh, I mean, I just find it immensely fascinating there's a sentimental side too but also knowing that it's got the 90s themselves are you know is just a mix of all those different um factors that went in there in terms of what the technology was available and you know you you talk a lot about chicago in the book um which i i grew up in like sort of northern central illinois kankakee county uh so i i could ride the train right up in chicago and obviously a different era for me but 90s chicago the way you describe it like really sounds a lot like 70s or 80s new york where there are just these hubs of like places where kids would go and arcades Mm -hmm. and uh the the kinds of like little subcultures that would develop around there and like rough neighborhoods certainly uh, but like rough neighborhoods that still had a f- sense of community around the games that they were playing, right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Dennis's Place for Games in particular, which I spotlight in the book and as a subject of the first chapter, rather actually not the first chapter, but the prologue. Yeah, it was uh, not in a very good part of town at all. The area was at one point just covered with graffiti. and But it was also a place where kids would go over there to hang out. I mean, kids from bad neighborhoods would go um, to just, you know, kill time in the arcade and the arcade was open until about two in the morning. So you could be there, um, and find something to do. And it was one of those things that I didn't really think about too much until, you know, I started to uh, really look into Chicago. Um, I have a friend who's from Chicago and we're talking about the murder rate, uh, in the early nineties and the murder rate was just crazy. And mm-hmm. this was in a bad part of town too. So just the idea that like, you know, as you know, things are so bad outside, you've got this amazing culture, um, with the arcades really having a peak moment in Chicago or rather actually being about to peak because Mortal Kombat is coming out at the same time. And Mortal Kombat, of course, also comes from Midway out of Chicago. And these games are being tested. They're being debuted in front of these audiences. So it's something really special. I mean, the 90s arcade itself is something that's something very cool. You know, the birth of fighting game culture. You know, now you've got these big fighting game tournaments and there's all this love for this. And all that started off with the 90s with arcades. Um, so it was something really special. And Chicago as a place itself is fascinating. And I really liked it as a backdrop for the book and knowing that all this stuff happened, you know, in and around all the key parts of the book happened in Chicago um, was something that was really cool to me and allowed me to 
kind of look at that whole world from a different kind of lens. And, you know, uh, early on in the book, too, you say that in the initial like talks between uh, the like folks like Mark Turmel uh, and and some of the other people who are trying to get uh, the idea for NBA Jam off the ground with with the NBA licensing, uh, the NBA initially passed because mm-hmm. of like the seedy reputation of arcades, which really boggled my mind because I think I think as a community games industry or media or what have you, we talk about arcades as uh, a, a little bit more like a oh this this bastion of of play and mm-hmm. bright lights and everything and forgetting yeah that a lot of these were basically havens for city kids uh so yeah was was it really that bad or was the nba uh kind of maybe playing it too safe when they initially passed on that uh, licensing agreement so by that point it wasn't nearly that bad but the nba were based out of times square and by even by that point of the early 90s times square is just starting to get revitalized and become what times square is now today um so they were really you know what they knew of arcades and video arcades were things that they'd also associate with crime or with porn shops or with hookers and things like that. And I think there was something that, you know, the NBA was really reluctant to just, they didn't even want to go there in the first place. And they thought, okay, well, you know, we don't really have to give our license to these people. Like we don't really want to, but then Roger Sharp from Midway just kept hammering and hammering being like, please do this. This is a good idea. Yeah. Nine months. Yeah. Which is crazy. I mean, you think, I mean, NBA jam is a slam dunk right off the bat. If I said, tell you the premise, He's just like, oh, yeah, of course that's going to find an audience. Of course that's going to make money. I mean, it became a billion-dollar game. Um, just making a billion-dollar in quarters alone slash tokens or quarters slash tokens alone is crazy. But, I mean, you're going to know it's going to be a success no matter what. Um, but the NBA didn't see it that way. I mean, they'd never given their license out to an arcade game before. The NFL had given it to one game before. Don't know if the MLB had, but this was very much uncharted territory. And so, the, yeah, Midway really had to do what they could to convince the NBA – that their ideas were antiquated, you know, by the early nineties, you know, video game arcades were in a different place across the country, you know, family entertainment centers were everywhere, you know, mini golf places were everywhere. Those storefront arcades and strip malls were everywhere. And those were very safe places um, by contrast with what the NBA thought. So that was something that I was surprised by too. As somebody who grew up in the nineties, I had never associated the nineties arcades with anything that was seedy or anything that's salacious. But the NBA had a different perspective, and you also have to consider these are people that didn't really know about video games in that way. I mean, we know about video games because we've got a passion for them, but to them, it's a business opportunity. And when you've got a huge brand at stake, especially as Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls are starting to really take off, you have to be careful about what you do with that license. Mm-hmm. And they were very, very conservative with it. I mean, they even, you know, the uh, NBA Jam team, they wanted to put in uh, actual real NBA sponsors on the the scrolling ads by the scorers board and the nba said no to that because they didn't want to leverage any kind of license that they didn't own themselves probably also because they didn't want to get in any more trouble and of course that ended up being all for nothing and nba jam was a huge hit and i bet any of those brands that could have gotten an nba jam would have said yeah i would have loved to be an nba jam in retrospect considering that you know the game is still everywhere and people remember really fondly advertising yeah. yeah exactly yeah and so they just came up with their own brands and they just you know they did john hayband after the guy who did the music for nba jam and they did air morris shoes after air morris who was their uh, digitization model their main model for the game um no the nba had a very different perspective on it and i think that nba jam opened up a lot of doors because you know after that you're going to see different nba games in the arcade i know i think sega had some um, I'm certain there are other competitors off the top of my head. I can't really remember them, but I'm sure there's others. And then of course the world really changed. So yeah, the, the, the NBA games that were landing in homes too, cause the NBA had already like given its license to some home games. Um, was there something, obviously NBA jam was a much more arcadey, uh, heightened reality experience. Was there, was there other, were there other things that those home games were kind of really missing to like really, blow the roof off like NBA Jam did? I think the biggest thing was at the time, you know, it's you take it for granted that you're going to have real players in games. But back at that point, having real players, not just their names, but their actual faces, not even on the select screen, but within the gameplay itself was just really unheard of. And the home consoles didn't have the technology to be able to do that. NBA Jam did. 
And even the way that NBA Jam went about it was very old school. All those heads were all hand-drawn. I mean, those likenesses are really good, but only maybe the front-facing likeness was something that, that Tony Gosky, the artist on NBA Jam, was able to reference. And a lot of the stuff he had to extrapolate from different angles. And he had to actually do a lot of extrapolating um, and imagining what something would look like. But the NBA, any of, I think they cared about their home licenses because obviously it was a huge opportunity for them to get in with you know the Nintendo craze and the Sega craze and whatnot. Um, but I don't think they really had to jump through those kinds of hoops in terms of talking about players and what players, you know, what likenesses look like and worrying about getting them photographs or scans or head scans or anything like that because that wasn't even a thing yet. So yeah, NBA Jam was was really big for basketball video games in a lot of ways, not just because it was a popular game, but because it was letting the arcade players play as actual NBA players for the first time in many cases, aside from just seeing the name on the box and a really vague resemblance of the game, you know, the kind of resemblance yeah. where you're like, okay, if that says that it's Michael Jordan, I'm going to tell myself it's Michael Jordan, even though it doesn't really look like anything, anything like Michael Jordan. And now, of course, it's totally different. Now you get upset when somebody isn't dead on like who they should be. Um, but back then, though, this is all uncharted territory. You know, let, let's shift a little into the, the people behind this, because this is really where so much of the interesting meat is behind all this, the the relationships that were built and the business partnerships and some of the even some of the conflict, really. Um, people like Mark Turmel uh, and Tim Kitzrow, uh, the voice of the game, the the eponymous boom shakalaka man. Uh, what was it like to talk to people like Turmel and some of the other uh, founders of this series? And uh, what were the kinds of like, I guess, lessons or uh, uh, anecdotes that like really surprised you that they were, were they opening, were they open up to the experience? Uh, were, were they, had they ever been like really interviewed about this in depth before? So I know that each of them in terms of the big players, like let's say, let's just use Mark Turmel and Tim Kitzrow's examples right off the bat. Both of them had been interviewed about it before, but I wanted to do something with NBA Jam that had never been done before. Uh, there's right now. There's a really great Sports Illustrated piece about NBA Jam online that you can go check out. Um, that I really love. That they started working on that and they, they published that uh, after I started the book and before I uh, finished. Before I ended up publishing this, um, and that's a really great interview with uh, Termel and all. But it's like it's very different. Like it's very. Uh, just touches on the basics, the key things you need to know about NBA Jam. Nobody ever really talked to him about his life in depth um, at that point. And I wanted to do something different. I wanted to see, okay, who are these people? You know, what are their stories? Because that really was what makes a book about a video game interesting. If I just publish a book about NBA Jam itself, of course, there will be cool things about it. But I find it far more fascinating to say, okay, who's the guy who made NBA Jam? Why did he make NBA Jam? How did he get to the point where he wanted to make NBA Jam or cared so much about the game that he would rig the code so that the Pistons would beat the Bulls in the fourth quarter if you're playing the two teams against each other? So uh, Mark Turmel, right off the bat, um, it was a little bit tough to get him at first, but right off the bat, when I started talking to him, I remember the first night we spoke, it was probably, let's say, so I'm East Coast time and he is over in California. So it was a three hours difference. And he wanted to talk when he was coming back from the office. So it's 930 for him, um, at least the one time we spoke and it was 1230 for me. So I had to, I think I either stayed up and I was really tired um, or I had to like set my alarm and wake up then to talk to him. But I think I asked him one question. And he just kept going for 45 minutes with the whole story from beginning to end. I'm not sure he had an idea of how big that I thought this project was going to be or what I thought it was going to be. Um, but basically, in the event that I just did one interview, Turmel gave me enough that I could do like beginning, middle, and end. I mean, I could obviously – I'd have to miss out on a lot of the details, but I'd have something to work with. Um, so he was game, but I really started to get to know him. In total, I did 10 interviews with him, and by the end, I really felt like I had a good grasp on him. And I started to surprise him with what I knew about Midway and things like that. Like uh, Turmel was talking to me about this restaurant across the street, uh, and the property's still around, but it's undergone changes a bunch of times. Right now, I think it's Taco Place. But he's talking to me about where you know he and John Tobias would go to this place across the street in the early '90s, late '80s, and talk. Uh, you know, John Tobias, the co-creator of Mortal Kombat, said that he was thinking about leaving Midway because you know he wasn't making any money. He was really underpaid at that point. Um, but Tremel was like, "Look, you need to stay here. They'll let you do anything you want. Like this is a huge opportunity." And then lo and behold, he ends up making Mortal Kombat not long thereafter. Um, and the restaurant across the street was named Diane's. 
and Tramiel's talking to me about this restaurant, but doesn't say that it's Diane's. And it, after Diane's, it became another place in the late nineties. Anyway, so I'm talking to Tramel about this and he, you know, references this. And I was like, was the restaurant Diane's? He's like, how did you know that? <laughs> and at this point, I've just like really gone in deep where I could tell you all these little details about what it looks like. I can tell you the path from the Midway office over to the Burger King that people took or that Mark Tramell and Jamie Rivet, the programmer, took in which they developed on fire, in which they really came up with the idea for the first time. Like I really wanted to get in deep in this world. So I felt like I was living in the 90s for a while, like spending so much time researching it, reading old articles, reading old interviews, looking at old photos. It really felt like I could just – live and breathe this world, which I wanted to do. Um, Tim Kitzrow was also very receptive at first. Uh, my first, uh, actually he was probably more receptive than Termel cause I got him earlier and I did a really good interview with him. And then I think I did four interviews with him maybe overall, but by, you know, at the second interviews, that's when he really started to get an idea of, okay, this is like, you know, this guy isn't kidding around. This guy's serious. This guy really wants to do something big with it. This guy really wants to go in depth. And I was grateful enough to get great access, but I really wanted to make it count by asking them all kinds of questions. Like I don't want to just hear positive things because, you know, nostalgia can only go so far mm-hmm. with when you're writing a book like this. I don't want to just be like, oh, I bought it because it has NBA Jam on the cover and I love NBA Jam and that's the only thing about it that's any good. I want afterward people to say like, wow, you know, those were highs and lows. Those were you know, those had there were twists and turns in that book. There were there was an actual story over there. There's something with meat, so I wanted to write this like a novel. So um, yeah, getting to know these people was was great, and the big thing in doing it was just establishing rapport and being able to reference those details offhand that I think really added to my credibility. And at this point, Tim Kisro is a huge uh, supporter of the book, which I really appreciate. It always feels a little weird blurring those lines between a subject and a friend yeah. or somebody you know, you're know you close with, uh, but it's definitely gone to that point with NBA Jam. Of course, the book is going to generally portray him and Midway in a positive light and Termel in a positive light no matter what, um, just because you know I'm a lot of these things are good things that happen with NBA Jam. It isn't about a game that failed. Um, but yeah, I was lucky enough to really get to talk to a lot of people, but I really wanted to make it count. I really wanted this book to be something that people walk away from saying like, wow, I really learned something and that was a great story over there. And these guys are fascinating and Mark Tramiel should be more of a video game icon than he is right now. So hopefully I achieved some of that with the book, but, uh, yeah, a lot of that was just learning as it went along. And you know, the the nineties being such a boom for games, talking to these guys, uh, anyone on the team, I suppose, was it evident that like were, were they aware of kind of the rock star nature that they were kind of acquiring as the as their franchises like exploded in popularity? And it it always fascinates me to hear like, well, this guy was nineteen and he like designed the physics system for you know this famous game, or like he or here's mm-hmm. this artist who like they just kind of picked up from a, a like a local dive uh, and suddenly this is the person like defining game art or something for a while. Did, did it seem like they either in the moment or reflecting on it during these interviews, did they know the kind of like reputation they had like built up for themselves? Definitely not. No. Um, or at least that if they did, it wasn't until many years later. And I don't think it's really going to be, I mean, the thing with something like this is that you really have to – something has to come out to be able to remind people that, okay, this is so big or this is so good. Mm-hmm. Or you need to have a reason for people to be talking about them. Um, in the 90s though, I mean the Midway guys were just – they were great developers, but they were just developers. They weren't rock stars by any means. Even Mark Tremell himself, which you know had some of a following because of the work that he did on the Apple II games in the 80s um, – and would have been the 70s. I'm forgetting the the timeline offhand. Um, but yeah, even they, you know, they didn't really see themselves as rock stars or anything. Their games were hit, were hits. But uh, you know, I talked to Sal DeVito, who's an artist on NBA Jam, and he said to me that yeah, when he he and everybody went to the arcade to show off NBA Jam, nobody cared that this was the development team. Like they were not like it wasn't like oh wow, you guys have made the game. It was more like okay, great, how's the game play? You know, yeah. what's the game like? Like that's <laughs> what they're the, focused on. Tell me those was. codes. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and with this too, is that, you know, game development is very different now from it is back then in terms of the accessibility. I mean, you can go on there and you can just look, let's say search Moby games or giantbomb.com or something like that and mm. see full developer lists or looks, you know, find a developer on Twitter, on Facebook or something like that. I mean, people are everywhere now. Um, Whereas back then you have to go through like the credits menu of the game if the game has a credits menu and then try to like link up people and a lot of it doesn't really make uh, make too much of an impact. 
And the developers that were in the game, they actually started putting their secret characters in the game, their own heads, mm-hmm. as a way to say, okay, I was in this game or something cool. Um, it was described to me as a way to win bar bets. Like, okay, you know, I bet you that I'm in this arcade game. And somebody else says, no, you're not. And then they go and they enter the initials. It's like, whoa, you are in this game. Um, no, it was a very different uh, a very different era. And I hope these people recognize more as rock stars as time goes on. Uh, I think a few of the big ones will have some of a reputation. I don't think it honestly is where it should be with the NBA GM team as an example. Um, but, you know, Boone and Tobias from Mortal Kombat, those guys, I feel like – those names are iconic. I mean, they also made themselves iconic with Noob Saibot. Putting themselves into games really helped. Right, right. Um, so, yeah. So, I don't think that they're really – I don't think they've ever really felt like rock stars, except for maybe Tremel. Um, maybe Tim Kitzrow at some points. But even then, as I talk about in the book, he wasn't treated like a rock star by any means. So, um, a lot of this stuff is like, yeah, it's after the fact. In the trenches, when they were there making the games, definitely not. You know, uh, the the learning about the fan culture is really fascinating to me. Um, and this is where I think your your intention of telling this almost like a novel is really great because you're you're you are highlighting just uh, mundane parts of these particular person's lives and connecting them to NBA jam. And so you, you profile these two friends who ended up writing the like first official NBA jam guidebook. And this being the nineties, it just boggles my mind. I I used to do a bunch of like freelance writing for uh, IGN's wiki section. And Mm -hmm. nowadays that's, that's actually like a big moneymaker. That is honestly like what keeps the lights on at some websites, uh, which is why they've really expanded a lot of those things. But here you got two people calling up uh, Termel, I think uh, asking like, Hey, like 10 times, like, Hey, what's, what are the codes that we can enter or like, you know, any tips from you? And he's actually like humoring them. Uh, what, what was, what was the fan culture surrounding NBA jam really looking like as it began to grow? Yeah. The fan culture is probably my, just my personal favorite part of the book um, in terms of things that I wrote that had never been shared before. Nobody's ever told these amazing stories of the fans who uh, wrote these kinds of strategy guides in the 90s. Certainly nobody ever wrote anything about Randolph Vance and Greg Henderson, the guys who wrote the main NBA Jam guide. Um, There was a third person who actually created that original guide, whose name is Carl Chavez, um, who built the, I think the foundation for it. And then uh, Vance and Henderson ended up taking over. Um, but yeah, the culture was, they were online, they're on Usenet, which was kind of a, I think, I think it was a precursor to the internet. Um, I forget exactly how I describe it, but it was kind of a bulletin board. So it was just a forum. We could go on there and post. So what's great is that you can actually go through Google groups and find the actual post people made in the early nineties about games as they were coming out that you're like retro NBA jam is retro, but you know, you go on Google groups, you can see people saying, talking about NBA jam as it happened, you know, as they're learning about the game, um, people immediately took to the game. It was on rec.games.video.arcade which is where the culture really thrived. And at the time, everybody was talking about those secret character codes. The number one topic was the cheerleaders. <laughs> you know, are the cheerleaders in NBA Jam or not? Like, you know, oh, I've heard they are. Oh, I've heard they're not. And people are BSing each other left and right. I found this great fo- post from way back when where some guy says, you know, I played NBA Jam at the Mall of America. This is 1994. He says, I played NBA Jam at the Mall of America and I played as Michael Jordan. And... Oh. Which, of course, he was never actually in any release versions of the game. So Randolph Vance, one of the writers of this guide, had to come along and be like, yeah, right. Like, that did not happen. So there was lots of debunking. And, of course, with the 90s being what it was, like in terms of the mediums that were available, you can't do as much rigorous fact-checking. You can't be like, hey, look, I just, you know, I found a source over here that says something contradictory. A lot of the stuff is within magazines. You have to own the magazines. You know, it's just so much more scattered. So Randolph uh, Vance and Greg Henderson were a couple of friends who uh, went to the University of Kentucky over in Lexington, Kentucky, and they uh, started really fleshing out this guide online. And then Vance uh, ended up seeing somebody play as this uh, weird NBA player that he'd never seen before, and his name was Termel. And uh, you know, Termel, and Vance goes up to the machine and is like, "Who's that?" And this guy's like, "Oh yeah, you know, you entered this code, and you can play as Termel." And Vance is like, I've never heard of this player. This is no NBA player I've ever heard of. So he goes and he does a little bit more research. And he's like, okay, these are the guys that made the game, not actually NBA players. And then he's then they start talking. They're like, okay, well, 
you know, how can we get in touch with them? And they figure out, okay, Midway's based in Chicago. Termel must be from Chicago. Then they go to the university library. They find the white pages. You know, they find Termel, Mark Joseph. And then they call him at home. And thankfully, Mark was somebody who really understood why people loved NBA Jam. And there's something, you know, he is a rock star. He's the closest thing to a rock star in the book in terms of like, he loves that fan adulation. <laughs> he loves to mess with people. He loves the entertainment. Um, he loves to be the center of attention. And I don't think that's a bad thing. That's just, you know, he just loves that stuff. And uh, at first he was like, don't call my house. Like, why are you calling my house? Then he was like, okay, you know, if you really want something, call me at midway tomorrow and we can talk again. So they call him back. And then he's more comfortable about talking to them. And then he gives them a couple more codes. And then slowly these guys started to flesh out this guide, this guide and start to develop somewhat of a relationship with Tremel, calling him here and there. Sometimes they talk for five minutes. Sometimes they talk for 45 minutes or an hour. And then ultimately, you know, they build this really great guide that uh, Video Games and Computer and Entertainment Magazine ended up asking them if they could use. So these guys didn't just write the first NBA Jam guide that really made its rounds online. These guys also wrote something that was picked up by Larry Flint Publications, Larry Flint uh, Publications of Hustler fame, <laughs> that uh, you know the, one of their video game magazines. So Vance told me, yeah, Randall Vance says like I got this check from Larry Flint Publications. It was so weird, two hundred bucks for uh, writing this NBA Jam guide, and uh, and they started you know developing this relationship with Tremel to the point that they asked like, hey, is it okay if we come down to Chicago and visit? So then they went over to Chicago and visited that, and I thought it was so magical. Like, you know, visiting a game developer at a time like that, you know, just making the road trip with your buddies and going over to see where they make arcade games, that's something really magical to me. And nobody's ever told a story like that before, so I am really proud of that, and I love that material. It would, it would never happen. To yeah, it would be totally <laughs> different. I mean, imagine, like, I'm saying, like, oh, boy, you know, Guys, like, just let me come over there right now. EA Sports, please. I'm right outside. Like, let me just come over there. Or let me come visit you. Yeah. I mean, unless I'm like somebody who really has a lot of pull, you're not going to indulge me. And it's totally different too that he found them through the phone book, and that you know one thing led to another. Um, I'm sure it could happen in some ways, but man, the way that it happened back then, especially knowing that Midway is at the top of their game, was something really special. So practically like practically like detectives at that point like driving somewhere and getting a phone book and finding a name and taking a shot you know put uh, making a phone call from a phone booth probably and uh you think about like guide content today it's really just who can race to the to the completion point first really of like who can strong arm their way to like solve this puzzle post the answer. And then everyone just takes that and proliferates it for their own guides and their own SEO and, and such and such. But you have like literal young adults being detectives. Uh, It's fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, even now think about the access that you can have with a game. Like not only are there leaks, but there's certain, you know, there's things you can use to go in and look look at the code. I mean, I'm a Mortal Kombat fan and people are like analyzing all these things, you know, just going, going in really deep, but it's so much more, you know, you know, classic gumshoe detective work that you have to do when you don't have access to that kind of stuff. You have to ask around, you have to be lucky enough to, you know, have Mark Trammell pick up the phone and have Mark Trammell say, call me back tomorrow at work or, you know, to be able to get over to Chicago. Um, there was something really cool about that. And the fact that those guys put themselves as secret characters in the game and made themselves available really facilitated that, you know, which is why, you know, I can't really think like, okay, you know, the guys who made street fighter, you know, I'm sure there's amazing people that developed the first, uh, you know, like developed street fighter too, but honestly, I don't know them offhand. And I can't find them anywhere in the game in terms of, you know, their faces or their names in a prominent place. But these NBA Jam guys, they put them in there. And then as soon as somebody came calling, they were like, okay, yeah, we'll tell you more. And then one thing led to another. And those secret characters ended up becoming such a huge part of the game off of something that started off as basically a gag. So there's just all these wild things that happened because of that and because of those fans uh, and all that that interest in NBA Jam, that was just something that really special. I'm like, these are great stories, and I definitely don't want them to get lost to time. Um, mm. I just love learning about stuff like that. I love learning about how fans used to interact with games. I mean, you don't have the same level of information. It's so much more magical. And you know, uh, so the game comes out. Uh, it, it's a smash success, uh, like you said, a billion dollars in quarters. Um, the, the public has spoken. They really, really enjoy it. 
um, and the fan community has grown around it. Uh, but it's, it was interesting to learn a little bit more about the impact it had on like actual NBA players like Shaquille O'Neal and then uh, random uh, folks like DJ Jazzy Jeff. Yes, of uh, uh, Fresh Prince fame, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what what were those conversations like and what were what was the what, what was what was happening on the actual NBA player side as Jam was exploding? On the actual NBA players' side, they were starting to get more familiar with video games. You know, um, now do you mean actually in terms of their relationship with video games, or what was going on in the league? Uh, well, just just like reading about how they would, uh, you know, acquire their own mm. um, cabinets and they you. would have their own competitions, etc. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they were just starting to. So you know. Athletes playing video games nowadays isn't a big deal at all. It's like, you know, you'll see people that'll go on there. They'll have their own streams. They'll go out there. They'll play with fans. They'll do this, that. The uh, the big show from the WWE plays Destiny religiously. Yeah, yeah. And that isn't out of the ordinary. Like, if you say that, I mean, that's a cool fact, but it's not like, whoa. You know, that isn't mind-blowing. But, you know, in the early 90s, it's a very different world again. Um, but yeah, NBA Jam was such a huge success that even the NBA players themselves would line up at arcades to play it. Glenn Rice, who was on the Miami Heat and one of my favorite players in the 90s, incredible player on the Heat and on the Charlotte Hornets, and then he was on the Lakers too. I'm sure I'm forgetting another team in there. Um, he was fantastic. But yeah, he would, in an arcade in Miami, he would wait in line with everybody else to play NBA Jam. And then he got so tired of waiting, he was like, you know what? I'm just going to buy an NBA Jam game for myself. So he had one cabinet in his house, and then his kids started playing it so much that he was like, okay, well – you know, they've monopolized this one machine. I'm going to get myself a second one. So he got himself a second one and he would play the game until all kinds of hours. You know, he'd be playing until one, two in the morning. And this just blew my mind. I mean, these are people who are the actual players. I mean, this is who the game is based on. They're spending their own time playing the game and they're playing it very religiously. I mean, Glenn Rice talked to me about big head mode. And if you know about big head mode, you have to be a real NBA jam fan. I mean, He's on fire, boom shakalaka, you know, a couple of these things. I feel like, you know, they're really prominent. Big Hand Mode is famous too, but, even, but you know, it's I think it's on a separate tier. You have to have a little bit more familiarity with NBA Jam to know about Big Head Mode and play in Big Head Mode, which Glenn Rice did. Um, but, yeah, Glenn Rice had his own cabinets. So did Shaq. Then when the, the home versions came out, they would play the uh, Sega Genesis version on the road. On the, road. Uh, the Orlando Magic would gather – after getting off a bus, hang out in a hotel room, trade tons of money, playing and betting on NBA Jam games. I mean, it really just ignited their imaginations because it made the players feel like superheroes too. I mean, they are superheroes in a way that they're doing really cool things and everybody's got their attention focused on them. So much rest on their shoulders and their games. But in this game, you know, when they're jumping these at these crazy angles, doing all these wild dunks, you know, everybody in NBA Jam practically looks like a superstar with the things they can do. Mm-hmm. It just really ignited their imaginations, and the players loved NBA Jam. Sean Kemp had his own cabinet. Gary Payton still has, from what I understand, two cabinets at his place in California. Shaq still has at least one of his cabinets. Um, I mean, it just had it such is, a huge impact. It, it is funny that you mentioned, like, the superstar effect, because, yeah, there were definitely some players who, like, enjoyed seeing themselves just kind of performing these superhuman feats and like getting a kick out of it but it was Shaq of all people I did not expect this level of like introspection from Shaq uh he he said he never wanted to play as himself because he really enjoyed playing as characters who had their you know stats modified to like be better at uh three pointers Mm -hmm. or uh or like be better on defense or something like that and i was like wow that actually that that's kind of touching here's a player who like has everything he could ever ask for even then in the heyday uh and yeah even as a kid i i heard the jokes about like shaq can't shoot for crap he can only like dunk or get up in your face kind of thing mm-hmm. but uh here's shaq like actually opening up and saying i i like this game because it lets me be someone else other than this superstar i already am yeah you know that was amazing to me yeah that Shaq is using nba jam to live vicariously i mean Shaq of all people and people are using nba jam to live vicariously as Shaq. Shaq is using it to live as chris mullen a three-point shooter 
or as Reggie Miller, a three-point shooter. Yeah, he would always play NBA Jam and never want to play as himself. He just thought there was, you know, I'm in fact, I'm not even sure if he was ever played it as himself. You know, he might have at some point, but from what he told me, it was it was always three pointers or bust. And yeah. you know, he just and he was like, oh, I'd always want to do something I can could not do in real life. And I thought that was so cool. I mean, that's. Uh, that really, the game meant so much to him, and it wasn't just a, this ego boost. It was something a way for him to enjoy something else about basketball that he couldn't do himself. And before that, he played double dribble. And then he said, when you know he grew up, uh, or rather when he was in college, he was playing double dribble. And then when NBA Jam came along, then everything else was left in the dust. And I found a couple of photos. Uh, I found a photo of Shaq playing NBA Jam. Uh, at his place in the early 90s. Actually, it was some other people playing on his machine in the early 90s. And then, then there was another video that somebody uh, shared with me that had him playing NBA Jam with Magic Johnson at his house. This is a video. It was just, wow. I mean, this is... this is <laughs> Artifacts. Yeah, amazing artifacts and basketball royalty. And at the time, the hottest thing in the world, taking time out of his day because he loved NBA Jam so much because it was so big. I mean... It's, you know, sports games are a dime a dozen in some ways. You know, they just keep being refreshed year after year. But NBA Jam was a phenomenal success. I mean, Jurassic Park made $343 million or whatever it was in 1993. NBA Jam made $1 billion. $1 billion in tokens slash quarters. Not counting the home versions, just the arcade version. I mean, that is a huge, huge, huge success. And Jurassic Park was everywhere in 93. So it was just wild the impact the game had. You know what an NBA Jam sequel needs? Uh, uh, Raptors instead of human players. Oh, that's, man. That's There's actually, believe it or not, there is a version of NBA Jam that exists. Uh, it was for, I think, the Sega CD that had three dinosaurs in it. And I think there's a raptor in there. And then there's NBA Showtime that had the uh, Toronto Raptors mascot in there. So, yeah. So, oh. And so much of this, yeah, is about wish fulfillment. Oh, man. And just crazy fantasy scenarios. I want to play as Will Smith in a basketball game. I want to play with right. Bill Clinton. I want to play as uh, George Clinton. I want to play as the Beastie Boys. I mean, just all these kind of mad libs of players, like random celebrities. You could do it in NBA Jam, and that's why people like DJ Jazzy Jeff loved it too. You know, that he told me that, you know, players, basketball players want to be musicians, and musicians want to be players. Well, NBA Jam allowed this musician to be a player. And you know, as we as we wrap up here, um, I, I I managed to read uh, fully through about like chapter eight or nine, and then I I had to leaf through the rest for time. But uh, the downfall of the arcade world um, is something I am always morbidly fascinated by, and uh, I would be very curious to know, you know, just what role. Uh, what what must it have been like to kind of see NBA Jam and arcades begin to wane from the perspective of these people who had built them up from scratch and then watched it become a billion dollar franchise? What were the the thoughts and feelings running through Midway at that point, and and as the series kind of uh, began to uh, have its bow? Yeah, it was a very tough time because not only you know is are you losing your cultural relevance? I mean. This is a time when you know the world of games is expanding just rapidly with CDs. 3D graphics are improving substantially. You know you've got first-person shooters coming to consoles, where it was just a PC thing at that point. And arcades are becoming second fiddle, and soon they're becoming completely outdated itself. Um, yeah, it was very tough for the Midway guys. I mean, Midway was always an arcade company first and foremost, and transitioning to the home market was very tough. Lots and lots of people lost their jobs. I mean, I forget what the number that I put in the book is, but it's we're talking about hundreds of people that are getting cut from these apartments because you're not talking about just the developers. You're talking about those people that are on the factory floor that are physically putting these machines together, physically putting pinball games together, You know, people who are doing working in shipping departments, things like this. All that was part of the Midway machine and then arcades go away and then suddenly this huge building they're in is just going to be gutted of all these things that gave it so much life. And for the people that were there for so many years, they'd gotten used to. So it was a very tough time and it was tough trying to figure out, okay, what is Midway if they're not an arcade game company? You know, are they just a home company, a, you know, a console game company that makes arcade style games? Like, what are we? And Midway never really figured that out, which is why, and they never, actually, I'm not even sure that they never really figured that out, is that they never really had uh, a, really a good plan in place for what the long-term strategy would be. 
They were just kind of flying by the seat of their pants, which is why they ended up going out of business in 2009. And it was just incredible highs and incredible lows from, you know, if you go from 93 to 2009. And I found that fascinating too. I mean, it's one thing to have a hit that's a marginal hit and then, okay, arcades die off and that's that. But I mean, you didn't just have NBA Jam. You had Mortal Kombat, which was huge. I mean, it just blows my mind when I think about this. Mortal Kombat, the first game, comes out, hits arcades in October 92. And the first movie hits theaters in August 95. That's less than three years from the very first game appearing anywhere to a major motion picture appearing across the country. That is a super fast turnaround time, especially at a point when video games aren't what they are now. And I'm just like, wow, that was something that Midway had. Midway had all these things. Midway had NFL Blitz. You know, Midway had just this incredible roster of fighting games besides that too not necessarily like in terms of quality but just in terms of the volume that they did like war gods makes the dark age bio freaks i mean they had things like the terminator 2 arcade game which was huge and all these things are just gone and then yeah you know the world changes um but it was really tough for midway to swallow and i know that a lot of people were you know they saw the writing on the wall you know after that point they kind of knew that things aren't going to be what they were and then Midway would eventually close up shop. So, yeah, from what I understood, nobody was ever like, okay, Midway's totally set forever after this. I mean, there was optimism to be like, okay, finally I can deal with console games and a different world than arcades. But, you know, Sal DeVita uh, told me that, you know, he was always concerned about the corruption on the arcade side in terms of you have to do certain things to make distributors happy and these arcade owners happy, which is fascinating too. Nobody really talks about that. Then he said I, he was disappointed to find that there was even more corruption on the home video game side and in terms of the, the, the whole world that went into that. So, um, yeah, Midway was first and foremost always an arcade game company. But, you know, eventually all things must end. And in the case of Midway, it hit them pretty pretty hard. And, you know, Capcom's still around. Capcom, I think, from what I understand, is doing fine. But Midway, they just couldn't figure out what to do next. And they ultimately really paid the price for it. Well, I'm so glad that a book like this exists and uh, I've been devouring it. I actually actually asked my dad, who does not read anything other than like Facebook these days, Mm -hmm. uh, if if he wanted to read about something like this. And he actually he actually expressed some interest because he he knew about he he was the one who got me into the NBA in the first place. Right. Uh, That's awesome. So uh, I'm glad that it seems to be getting a lot of interest already uh you've been following you on twitter and uh seeing people kind of uh, get their their press copies a little early um the book is out on the 22nd Mm -hmm. yep yeah yeah uh well first off thank you so much for talking to your dad about it i mean one thing that i (laughs) want to do with nba jam too is that like so you know so my mom she does not care about this world of video games at all like she she as far as i know she's played pac-man I think just because it was the thing at the time. And then mm-hmm. she's played Super Mario Brothers on the NES for me, and she can't get past the first jump. Like, she always dies in the first jump. So she's like the lowest of low bars. But even though she hasn't read the book yet, and I'm sure she's going to say nice things because she's my mom, but I wanted to write a book that somebody could, you know, you don't even have to know anything about arcades or basketball or video games in order to enjoy this world. And even while your father has that context, I hope that, you know, he can jump in and appreciate all this other stuff too because of the characters and the scene that I set. I mean, I want somebody to go in there. If you go in there knowing all this stuff about games, great. If you go in there, you know, not knowing a thing, great too. We'll make it work. That's what makes a good story is those characters and the details you tell and, you know, how you tell it. Um, but yeah, the book comes out on the 22nd. Uh, that's the digital version. Uh, we had a little bit of a delay with the printers, uh, printing the actual physical books. So unfortunately, that will be out by mid-November. But what's nice is that time's going to fly, and this really allows me uh, an opportunity to extend all the excitement. You know, I get the yeah. the the joy of the digital book coming out, and then I get to like you know ramp up the excitement towards the physical book coming out, which I have not even held in my hands yet. So I think you know I can't wait for the moment where I get to actually hold it. You know, where it's like you know I've held other boss fight books and. It sounds weird, but I've kind of like fantasized in my head what would it be like holding my own book, or you know, when I show off to people, I try to imagine. Just what will it smell know. like? Yes, exactly. Yeah, what is this? What is this thing actually like to you know feel in reality in three dimensions? Um, so yeah, so the physical book comes out on the fourteenth, and I'm actually now I'm really looking forward to the time between now and then because it gives me 
chance to take a little bit of a breather and then to ramp up for a second release. Um, yeah, I absolutely encourage everybody to check it out. Uh, you can pre-order the book at tinyurl.com slash nbajambook. That's going to take you on over to bossfightbooks.com. And they've got a couple of different packages available. One where you can uh, just get an ebook for, I think it's four ninety five. Then you can get the physical book for, I think it's fourteen ninety five, or you can get both for sixteen ninety five. And um, yeah, it's going to be available on Amazon Kindle too. It's a really exciting time, and the fact that I think that NBA Jam had such an impact on people is why people are really taking to it now. And plus, it cuts across all these different demographics. I mean, arcade fans, basketball fans, pop culture fans, you know. Uh, obviously video game fans, Midway fans. There's so many people that have so many reasons to care about this game and to care about its world mm-hmm. that it's really fulfilling and it's really satisfying and really strange thinking that, you know, this all started four years ago. I mean, I, uh, I spent longer working on this book than I did having, than I was in college. Um, it's just such a strange thing to think about, but uh, it's really satisfying to see it come out and very surreal. And yeah, I hope everybody checks out the book. And if nothing else, there's an excerpt out there you can check out tinyurl.com slash NBA Jam book excerpt, um, which would show you the very first portion of the book, which is the prologue. So if you want to read an early version of that over at Kotaku, uh, one that they published a few years ago when we first announced the book, yeah, you can check that out too. Um, Yeah, it's super cool. I'm really excited by the excitement that people are showing when it comes to reading the book and talking about the stories. And plus it's fun to talk about old video games, mm-hmm. especially NBA Jam and Midway. And of course <laughs> I love Mortal Kombat. So if you'd gone back in time and told that kid that was working on the Mortal Kombat website, like, you know what? Someday you will accomplish your dream of writing a book. And guess what? It's going to be about a Midway game. I mean, 10 year old me would have just been over the moon. I've been like, what? You mean the game that I saw on the back of that comic book? I'm going to write a book about it. I'm like, yes. With so that would be cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. So, um, no, it's very cool. And yeah, thank you so much for the interest and for having me on. This has been a blast. Yeah. Uh, you know, folks, NBA Jam, the book, uh, like Rayon said, uh, out on October 22nd, uh, digital and November 14th, physical. You should absolutely buy a copy, support it, support Boss Fight Books in general. They do great work. Uh, you can usually uh, find someone hawking them at some of the bigger industry events if you're one of our in, uh, listeners who works from the industry or adjacent to it. And uh, I I am honestly just going to go back to reading it uh, probably after I edit this podcast. So uh, Rayon Ali, thank you so much, man. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for not only for your time, but for reading in the first place. And I'd love to hear, you know, you know, no matter what your opinion of is in the book in the end, even though it seems very positive, I want to hear what like you really learned that was most surprising about this whole thing or something that really stuck out with you, because I am hearing different things from different people. And that's really satisfying too. just hearing like, okay, wow, I never knew that. Or so I feel a bit of joy just as a, as a Midway fan, as a video game fan, as a media jam fan, being able to share new information too. So yeah. So I would love to hear about like what you found was like most surprising or craziest once all is said and done. We will do that while we uh, wait for the episode to upload to my little server here. But folks, uh, Every Monday, you can find a new episode of the 1099. Actually, that's false. I've, I took a, a break for my birthday and went to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. So that's a, that's a bold-faced lie. But uh, usually every Monday, you can find a new episode of the 1099 here on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and elsewhere. And thank you so much for listening. Go give NBA Jam the book some love. And we are out. Soon.